Well, Pastor Jason has given us a new sacrament to be added unto the church. We do baptism, we do the Lord's Supper, and while the brethren and other charismatics have mistakenly thought it was feet washing, our Lord says it's kissing the pastor's feet. Now, I like that idea. So we're going to do pastoral foot kissing from now on. And uh, that ought to make you sick. Well, that's how people come up when you force a narrative to try to become a didactic and say, oh, this is taught in the Word of God. I was telling the pastors earlier on, dealing with a guy who kind of did that on Acts and something that I'd written. And I wrote back and told him, I said, well, it's like taking the narrative. Judas went out and hanged himself. Go thou and do likewise. It's a very dangerous thing. You have to be very, very careful. We interpret the word and the word tells us what we must do. We have no authority to bind the mind of anyone in anything that is not biblical. Now, there may be some things that in and of themselves are not necessarily sinful. We can make recommendation to that. You can accept it or you can reject it. That's up to you. But where we are commanded by God to do and to live in the way that he demands of us as believers. We don't have options. It's not one of those things we can say, well, you know, God, you know, that's not a bad idea, but don't want that. I'm going to reject it. I'm going to just say, well, I'm going to act as if you have not spoken to me. You don't have that authority. It would be nice if you could do that. It's like the old saying, the Lord came to a man and said, tell you what I'm going to do. Since you represent the nation of Israel, I'm going to give you 10 commandments. He says, what's commandment? And so the Lord gives him the 10 commandments. He thinks about it for a minute, and he said, can we have six instead of ten? We don't have that option. The law of God is not an option to us. Now, very quickly, before I get started into the sermon, one other thing that I wanted you to note, if you, in singing about the incarnation and Mary incarnation to you, uh, I don't say Christmas because I'm not doing Christ Mass. We do incarnation. That's the season in which Christ, we celebrate him being sent from the Father to us in a body prepared for him, that he may go to the cross and to accomplish that which was agreed upon among the triune God before the foundation of the world, which we call theologically the covenant of redemption. You'll notice in the hymn that we sang today, it said in particular that he was begotten, not created. 
Now, in theology, we try to get precise. Some have gotten this all goofed up. And so all of a sudden, they think there's somehow a subordination among the ontological trinity, which is a distinction to talk about the being of God. There is no distinction. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all equal in power, in knowledge, and in glory. There is no difference except personality, i.e. person. There is God the person, there is the Holy Spirit the person, there is the Son the person. So why do we say begotten, not created? It's really a perspective on the incarnation, on the work in the economy of salvation, which some have designated, perhaps with good intent and purpose, and it fits our need, the economy of the Trinity or the economic Trinity. In dealing with that concept, the economy of salvation, how does the triune God take an active role in redeeming the elect? How do we even get here? Well, the scripture is very clear. When it comes to the covenant of redemption, read, if you will, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through about 12. He says that we have been chosen by the Father in Christ, the second person of the Godhead. So you have the Father, the first, Christ, the second, and that we are through the power of the Spirit, renewed unto a righteousness based upon the righteousness of Christ. The application of his redemption applied to us. Thus we say, the Father has begotten, not created. Jesus wasn't created. And the second person of the Godhead was not created. But the second person in that relationship comes to be birthed among us, to condescend on behalf of the Father. Or as Paul says, Jesus Christ is the triune God bodily present to us. And so it is, he's not created, he is begotten. The Father has sent the Son and the plan or the economy of the Trinity. But remember, when we talk about these things, often we're looking at it kind of in a three-dimensional way. And thus the confusion comes in. When you look at the Trinity from one perspective, ontologically, there is no subordination. But when you look at it economically, the subordination is in the very first thing that they decreed they would do, each fulfilling a role in the redemption of the children of God. And so it's very important you understand that. Do not let people confuse you. And there is a lot of confusion today about these things. And hopefully in the future I'll be able to address some more of that, and try to eliminate the understanding of somebody that have been confused on, and that we would be able to properly understand the nature of our God, his purity, and at the same time, the work of our God, 
in the economy of our redemption. Where subordinationism does not compromise the nature of God. But it fits within the very thing God, as the triune God, determined from the foundation of the world. Now that we've said that, just for clarity's sake, we want to go back and pick up kind of where we left off, but let me just remind you of what we have said thus far. The doctrine concerning church discipline. This is sermon number 12, 13, 13, I think. We're dealing with the importance of self-discipline in corrective church discipline. Now, we said that one of the most Notable passages of the scripture that deals with church discipline is in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, our Lord says, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. Yet, but if he will not hear, take with you one or two more. And that by every word of the mouth that two or three witnesses every word may be established and if he refuses to hear them tell it to the church but if he refuses even to hear the church let him be to you a heathen and a tax collector assuredly i say to you whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven and again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth covering anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, says our Lord. I am there in the midst of them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word that you have given to us. We are not left in darkness, but you have given us the light of your word to walk in a way that would be pleasing to you. Help us, O oh God, to walk upright, to walk righteously before you. For we ask it in Christ's name. Now, Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to receive what thy Spirit and word would teach us this day, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. We began three Sundays ago teaching, if you will, on the meaning of church discipline. And we were careful to note, and the etymology of the very idea of discipline is the concept of learning, education, or tutoring. Doesn't sound so bad. Sounds better than big stick, chains, or a gun, doesn't it? Now, learning, education, tutoring. We have said that there is, to be sure, a positive and negative structure to all discipline. And thus we began to look at the positive structure of discipline. And that's what we are going to come back and look at even more closely. 
this area of self-discipline. Now, it's not here in Matthew 18 because it wasn't an issue being addressed. It is addressed, though, for example, in Galatians 5.23. I command to you, with gentleness and self-control against such there is no law. This is part of the fruit of the Spirit and the life of the believer. Self-control, self-discipline. And thus, we have this desire before prior to committing a transgression to control our life and to avoid the transgression in all that we seek to do to honor God. Now, I want us to go back to where we basically had left off last Lord's Day, and I want to pick up with this whole concept that we dealt with in considering the nature of self-discipline. I want to look at a couple of other passages that I think are very important to consider. They're important to consider because it deals with how you handle your life. Now, we don't want you to come and tell us every sin you ever committed. As a matter of fact, we don't have enough pastors to heal all your Sins. Do I think you're that sinful? Well, if I'm that sinful, you've got to be that sinful. It starts out with you being self-controlled. That's all. When you recognize from reading the word, hearing the word preached, that you've transgressed the law of God, you ask God, forgive me. If you transgressed against somebody else, you ask God to forgive them. If you've done it in public, you ask him publicly to forgive you. And you get your life under control. Or as we said, the old saying is, get a grip on your life. For the glory of God. But to do that, to have a real conscience of sin, you have to have a transformed mind. You've heard the scripture. Paul says, being renewed with the mind of Christ. You know what that means? Walking in the mindset of the word of God. How do we have the mind of Christ? We study the word of God. Now, I want us to direct us a little closer to this consideration as Paul gives it to us, especially in the book of Romans. And in the New Testament, the ideal that is being set forth by the Apostle Paul is to be walking according to the Spirit rather than according to the flesh. Galatians 5 says walk after the Spirit, and it enumerates all those things. We kind of looked at that. And then he goes on to say, but the fruit of the Spirit, or of the flesh is, and he contrasts the two. Now here's an exhortation for the church at Rome. You say you have the Spirit of God? Walk in the Spirit. What does that mean? 
Oh, I'm a believer. No, it doesn't mean that. You can say that till the cows come home, as they used to say in the old hills of the Appalachian Mountains where my parents came from. Does you no good. It's not words without meaning. They have real meaning because they changed your life. Christ changed through the power of the Spirit, the life that you are living. And that's the ideal. Walk according to the Spirit. We've already seen the fruits in Galatians 5, contrasted with the fruits of the flesh, the works that come out from the flesh, those things which are against the things of God. So when someone, there's no neutrality here, people. Either you're in the fruit of the Spirit and you're manifesting them and their good works in your life, or you're not. You can't somehow say, well, I'm not manifesting the fruit of the Spirit, but I'm not manifesting the flesh. I don't know what animal you call it. The fundamentalist movement tried to call it the concept of, does anybody remember the phrase? The carnal Christian. Oh, he's really a Christian, but he's just acting like the world. But he's saved. No, he's not. What foolishness. Because his conviction will require him to repent of his sin. He can't be walking in the spirit and acting that way. It's impossible. It's a contradiction between light and darkness. Ah, there's a little bit of both. No, you either have light or you have darkness. You ever notice that's just the way it works. Well, Paul gives us instruction about the way we are to live in Romans 6. And he says, beginning with verse 1. Now listen to it very carefully. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul's been preaching on how God's grace has saved us from our sin. And the more where there is sin, there's always grace. But Paul said, well, wait a minute. Before we get off on a tangent here, should we say that we should continue in sin that we'll get more grace? Listen to what he states. Certainly not. That certainly not men. You cannot continue in sin that grace may abound. Doesn't happen that way. Oh, if I'm a saved sinner, but I continue in my sin, I'm going to get more grace. No, you're not. You're just going to get condemnation. You're not reading it rightly. Then Paul says, how shall we who died to sin? Oh, that's that negative side of sanctification. Now we have a positional relationship to Christ in sanctification. But that does not remove the progressive nature of sanctification, what we call perseverance of the saints. We 
died in Christ to sin. Doesn't mean all sin is gone, but it means sin no longer masters our life. We don't have that besetting sin that constantly just drags on and drags on and drags on deeper and deeper and deeper into its clutches. So Paul says, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Is he saying that you're never going to be in sin again? No. But he's saying if you died to it, why would you want to live into it? Why would you be satisfied that you can live with the sin in your life? You can't. And you can't with anybody else. It's impossible. Because sin is offensive. Remember I told you, Paul says in the book of Romans, no man is an island to himself. No man lives to himself or dies to himself. Everything you do has implications not only for your own life, but how it affects other people. How can you live in sin when you have died to it? It's a contradiction in concept. Can a husband live in an adulterous relationship with a woman outside of his marriage and he be content to cheat on his wife as a Christian? And can she be content to say, oh, well, it's boys, so let boys be boys. You know, they're going to act this way. It doesn't happen. It's a contradiction. It's a contradiction. You can't be in sin when you're dying to sin. You're either dying or you're living to sin. You're not just sitting neutral and idly going by very slowly in your life. So he says, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ, we're baptized into his what? Death. Now he's talking about a spirit baptism a regenerating work of the Spirit. We have been baptized by the Spirit into the death of Christ. We've been plunged in the blood. There's power in the blood of God. It doesn't stain you. It cleanses you. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. This baptism and resurrection is going to speak about our spiritual nature. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. 
Christ was resurrected to a new life, if we have died with Christ in his death, are we not being resurrected in the spiritual work of regeneration to be like Christ and walk in the newness of life? Our life has changed. I've said this to you over and over again. There's nothing I enjoy more than when we get people in before the pastors and saying, well, tell us. How do you know you're a Christian? And you'll hear everything. I shook the pastor's hand. I give tithe to the church. I read the Bible now and then. I sing a Christian song now and then. I do attend at least half the services of the church. You'll hear it all. I mean, I love them. Some of you get really creative. I married a pastor. My wife would tell you right now, if she married me to be saved, <laughs> uh-uh. That didn't happen. She knows me intimately. She knows my sins. She knows my weaknesses. And she still puts up with it. 47 years. Going to have to get her a trophy at 50. You made it. You won the prize. What you got, I have no idea. But you made it. How important. Raised to newness of life. You can't be happy in sin. You won't be happy in sin. I've told you that over and over again. There is no satisfaction apart from Christ. And then we will push and ask the next, I guess it's considered a nasty question. No, I don't think you understand the answer. I, I mean, we even had, I read the Bible once. I said Romans Road, Galilean Alley, whatever. And you say, well, no, no, you know, I signed a, a little card that said, I want to be a believer. No, what I'm asking you is, how did your life change from the day before you got saved to the day after? This is the way you lived your life back then. How has your life changed and how are you living it now? You talk about utter confusion. They never thought about it. Well, it really hasn't. I had one person tell me that. Well, it really hasn't that I can tell. And I said, well, then you got a problem. I can't let you join the church. You're not a Christian. And since you're an adult and not a child, you don't get to join with your parents. You're on your own here. Then we take the husband inside and say, you got real problems. And the first one begins with you teaching your wife. She ought to know these things because you taught them to her. 
newness of life. Now Paul, or Jesus goes on to say, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. That's the foregone logical conclusion. Knowing this, that our old man, that's the old nature, was crucified with Christ, with him. We died a spiritual death in being renewed through the death of Christ. That the body of sin might what? Be done away with. Do you see the contrasting nature of this? That the body of sin, that old man, that way you lived your life without Christ might be done away with that sin will no longer have mastery over you, as Paul will say in our next section of Scripture. That what? We should no longer what? Be slaves of sin. It's what it's done. It's broken the slavery of sin. And now you're a slave of Jesus Christ. The great poet, Bob Dylan, wrote a song. Well, it's actually a poem. But you maybe heard it. You're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord. Doesn't matter who you are in this life. Don't matter your title, your name. Nothing matters because you're going to serve somebody. And what he says here to us is we're no longer slaves of sin. Do you realize everybody in life is a slave? That's what Paul says. You're a slave to Satan and sin or you're a slave to Christ. Which is it? When you're free from your sin, we call that freedom but it's still slavery to Christ. But he is a benevolent master. He blesses us. He's kind. He's generous when we don't deserve his grace and kindness. And I don't mind being a slave to a Lord like him. The other guy... He only gives me pleasure for a season, the Bible says. And then I hang myself by his own rope that he gave me that I was stupid enough to put around my neck. Well, actually, I got born with it around my neck, thanks to Adam. I just am too stupid to take it off. All I got to do is be free in Christ. I'm a slave to Christ. The noose is gone. I'm not a slave to sin any longer. My final destination is with Christ, not condemned with Satan. Now listen to what he says. For he who has died, Christ, in us, in him, has been freed from 
sin. Christ who died, we who have what? Died with Christ. We have been freed, therefore, from our sin. Are you free from your sin? There's power in the blood. Yeah, there's power in the blood. Would you be free? The answer is there's power in the blood. Used to sing that hymn. Always loved it. It's power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. We don't sing it anymore. I don't know why. But our Lord goes on and says, Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer, or Paul here writing, says death no longer has dominion over him. You get that? Death is gone. Had to be renewed. Because of Adam's transgression. In Genesis 2.17. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day you eat therein, you shall die. There's the command. We died from the state of innocence by entering into the state of condemnation. What came with that? Death and the flesh and the countdown's on. Everyone dies ever since then. And we were estranged from God. We are no longer right with him. You want to be right with God? You want to escape the ravages of sin and the final victory over death, which is desirous to kill us? You gotta have the blood of Christ. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Christ only has to die once. All the sins are forgiven in Christ. Doesn't mean we're free to go and do whatever we want to do. It just means he is the full advocate for those who are in Christ. Their sins, all of them will be forgiven. But that doesn't mean we don't have a duty and a responsibility to live by the standard of God's law in the life that we live now that we've been freed by the Spirit of God in regeneration. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves, he says, to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, the contrast. Do you love sin or do you love righteousness? Do you love Satan or do you love Christ? What is it? Ask yourself that question. Which is it? 
People don't preach that way anymore. They just kind of bumble over Paul and go on. Well, you know, he's a pretty good guy. Well, heck, just the other day, he gave me a quarter for a cup of coffee. Besides, only a dollar short. Because it's a buck and a quarter now. But he's a good guy. He's not a bad guy. He comes to church. He dies. He reads his Bible now and then. He's a good guy. None of the requirements that are listed in the fruit of the Spirit. Not one. Who are you in Christ? Who are you? You say you're of Christ? Show me. By what? Having dominion over sin. Are you able to have self-control? The person who can't get control of their life has no reason to believe they're in Christ. They're only fooling themselves. They fooled themselves. And they were willing to believe their own lie. That's the worst part of it. Bad enough, I got Satan on me to believe a lie, let alone I'm willing to do it too. So he says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, your temporal body. He didn't say do away with it. He said, don't let it control you. Have self-control. You're going to get tempted. Do away with it. If you fall into the sin, repent of it, get out of it, get back on the bike and ride. Put on Christ. Get control of it. If you can't, seek help to get control of it. Do what's necessary so that you don't have the pastor knocking at your door saying, we got a problem. And you're not addressing it. Make me happy. Make me never have to do that again. I would love to be able to stand before God and say, yeah, I taught it so well. Everybody got it and they're all living. Man, they're just living the way you told them to live. They are not letting sin reign in their mortal. Man, when sin happens, they repent. They get on their knees. They ask God to forgive them. Give the power of the spirit. Teach them the word that they might better grasp this area of a besetting sin that's trying to get the upper hand and controlling it. They're going to try to put it to death by putting all the righteousness of Christ. I'd love to say that. Not going to get to, but I'd love to. Self-control. That's all we're talking about. That's what Paul's talking about here. Self-control. Self-discipline. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness. Don't volunteer yourself to sin. Instruments of unrighteousness to sin. 
but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. But if you can't, you better be checking your life at the door. Something's wrong. Why is it you love sin more than you love Christ, who you said died and saved you? And your members to be not only as alive, but instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. He says it again. For you are not under the law, but under grace. Under the law, without grace, the law was condemning you because you could not fulfill the requirement of the covenant of works. You could not obey God without grace. Now that you have grace, you're free from that condemnation. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Oh, no, no, no. I'm not saying, Paul says, we do away with the law. That would be like saying, because we are in grace and not under the law, we can sin. No, you can't. No, you can't. Certainly not, says Paul. Do you not know that to whom you present yourself slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you obey? Man, if you're caught up into sin and it has dominion over you, guess what? Paul says, this isn't me, it's Paul. I'm just telling you what he said. You are a slave to the one to whom you are obeying. Man, when you got sin in your life, that becomes a very important question. Why do you say, Peter says daily, make your calling and election sure of God. Why do you think he says that? Because we struggle with sin. We're at war with sin. Sin is not gone. It's here. Temptation is always abounding, especially to those of us who say we're Christians. Nothing greater that God loves than a Christian falling down under the dominion and power of sin. And struggle, 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 and don't seem to get a foothold because we fight in the flesh, not in the spirit. But my friends, if we die in that sin, that may be the very telltale story of who you really are. You're not a child of Christ because you're not obeying him. You're a child of Satan. A child of Satan. Because that's the one you obey. You're following his way. And so, Paul says, you are that one slave whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death, your own death, or obedience leading to righteousness, which is life in Christ. That God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet 
you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. Say what you want to say. Ah, our church has too much doctrine. You know what doctrine is? Teaching. You know what teaching is? Discipline. And you know what he just said? He says, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine, the teaching. Real doctrine leads to truth, and truth is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. No doctrine, no salvation. Form of doctrine. I just detest those people who say, oh, too much doctrine. What do you got left? Do away with the teaching? I guess we have a gospel group in or two, and we just sing through church service. We hear their little ditties and songs that are all screwed up and everything, because it doesn't matter. Doctrine doesn't really matter. But Paul says, yes, it does. Believing that form of doctrine, that teaching to which you were, what? Delivered. You were delivered by it. It directed you to Christ. God did not waste his time in writing the Holy Bible. And having been set free from sin, he's back to this issue. You became slaves of righteousness I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. Paul says, man, I can't get it any more simple than this. For just as you presented your members as slave of uncleanliness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. That is, the concept of holiness is to be set aside. Apart from world and the worldish. Not we live in the world, but he's talking about the worldly way that the lost live. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. You didn't have to worry about it. You were a slave to it. If you never think about living righteously, you got a real problem. Paul just identified you. Your problem is, you're not free in Christ. You're still a slave to your sin. Now Paul says, what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? If you say you're in Christ, how do you want to bear any of that fruit of the unclean? What fruit would you want to brag about? Hey, I was a great murderer. Holy cow. I used to love testimony night at church on Wednesday night. It wasn't testifying about how Christ changed your life. It was who was the greatest sinner. I always loved that. Yeah, yeah, brother so-and-so, he really, but you know what? I outsend him. And I used to sit there and wonder, is this really what we're supposed to be doing? 
bragging on how big of a sinner we were? I know how big of a sinner we are. There's no profit in that. There's nothing to brag about. Paul just said, why would you brag about the things you were ashamed of? For the end of those things is death. Why do you want to brag about things that were going to kill you before it was over? But having been set free from sin, how? In the righteousness of Christ, there's power in the blood. And having become slaves of God, you have your fruit not to death, but to holiness. You're changed. You're different than you were in the world. And the end, what? Everlasting life. That's the end of all discipline. Whether it's self-discipline, prescriptive, one-to-one, three-to-one, or the church confronting whatever it is, public sin, the end thereof is one thing, everlasting life. That's the goal. That's the real goal. Don't think we can say it any easier. We want to be sure that on the day of judgment, God will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Well done. <laughs> You're going to have to really put some fruits out there for him to say that, that belong to the Spirit. For the wages of sin is death. Better get a hold of your life. <clears throat> but the gift of God is what? Eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, I have to come back and finish the sermon up next Lord's Day. But what's he saying to us? Real quickly. You're either in sin and it has dominion over you or you have mastery over your sin and you have dominion over it. You're either serving Satan or you're serving Christ. You're either a slave of sin or a slave to Christ. You either look like the world and smell like the world or you look like a Christian and you smell like a Christian. I'm not talking about legalistic things here. Fruit unto death? You smell like death. Or it's fruit unto life? It's good fruit, not rotten fruit. It's good fruit. So it's no small thing when I say to you, who are you? Do you really have self-control? Do you really have self-discipline? Have you gotten a grip on your life before the Lord? I didn't ask you if you're perfect. You'll never be perfect. But you will be at war with sin every day of your life. You'll be striving to produce good fruit. 
you will seek to kill your sin and put on the righteousness of Christ through the power of the Spirit. Who are you? Well, I guarantee you the day's coming that would not be able to be hidden any longer from anyone. Yeah, the day's coming when we are going to all be exposed for all of our sin. And what a day of embarrassment that will be for all of us. It's so easy to point your finger and say they got problems when the reality is is you got three more of them coming back saying you got them too. But we want to ignore those three and we just want to point the finger and say ah, that guy's got problems and that girl got problems. People, we all struggle. We all are tempted. We all have occasion of falling but we get back up as Christians and we get back to doing the things that are righteous. We're not free from righteousness in Christ. We are freed unto the righteousness of Christ. Sin doesn't have dominion over us. Does it say we don't sin? No. It just doesn't control us. It doesn't have the power to hold us captive. And if you do, you got a bigger problem than you. Look at your life. Ask that question. Am I living? Am I living a life that is honoring to my God? Or am I simply trampling underfoot the blood of Christ and lying about who I really am? Big question. Who are you? How do you live? important question. Are you a slave? Sin or Christ? Take your choice. But you're going to be a slave to someone. I tell you, there's power in the blood. Wondrous working power in the blood of the Lamb. Would you be free from your burden of sin? There's power of the Lamb. Shall we pray?